What is up, families? Dr. Dale, the author of How to Raise a Doctor and the author of Pre-Med Mondays. Both books are available on Amazon.com, so make sure you grab your copies there. And you are listening to the Black Men in White Coats podcast, a place where black male clinicians have the platform to share their stories with individuals like you. Great episode today. Dr. Maurice Sholas or Doc Mo Show. <laughs> Doc Mo Show. Definitely check it out. And when I say Doc Mo Show, I say that because that's the name of his website. So if you go to www.docmoshow.com, and that's D-O-C-M-O-S-H-O.com, you can learn a whole lot about this phenomenal guy. He's a chief medical expert. He is a businessman, he does consulting work, he does all sorts of things. And of course, great physician, great physician, physical medicine and rehabilitation in the pediatric populations where he specializes. So you guys are going to learn a lot about that. And I just really love his story. I love a couple things I love about his story. I'll tell you guys at the end of the podcast, so I don't spoil them for you, but there are a few things in particular I really love about his story Um, and just his ability to tell a story and give you gems as he's telling the story. So he's telling you, hey, this is what I went through. This is what it was like for me. Here's what you can do for you as well, right? Giving you gems, just dropping dimes, gems of wisdom. You're going to love it. Before we get into that topic, man, you guys know, so of course I went on the break for a few weeks and that's because the Black Men and White Coats Youth Summit happened. Yes, it happened and, and it didn't just happen. I mean, it happened. It was a big deal. It was a, man, it was such a major success. And when I say success, just to give you an example, I've got my computer in front of me right now. I'm going to this website Some of you guys may know because of them, we can. So because of them, we can. They wrote a blog on us and they posted it on February 19th. So something happened last weekend on February 16th. They put a blog on their website about us on February 19th. Guess how many shares that blog has? I'm going to give you a second. I know you can't. I can't hear you back, but give you a second. Guess how many shares that blog has? Dun, 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 dun. All right. Your time is up. 398,000 shares right now. And I bet you I come back and I look at this in a couple hours after I go to, you know, after I go to um, church and recording this episode on a Sunday. So after I go to church, I'm going to come back. I'm going to look at that. I almost guarantee it's going to be above 400,000. It'll be in the 400s. 398,000 shares. I'm not sure I've ever seen a blog get that many shares online, any blog, period, anywhere. That is ridiculous. I mean, we've been picked up. So Ebony wrote a piece on us. Um, uh, Black News wrote a piece on us. Rock Nation gave us a shout out. A podcast called The Read gave us Black Excellence, sh- Black Excellence shout out. All over TV media coverage, it was just bonkers, guys. I knew it was going to be a success, obviously, because I don't, I don't do anything that I don't think is going to be a success. But I didn't know it's going to take the nation by storm as it has. Um, and I'm happy. I'm happy because I know that means people are listening, people care, people understand the plight that we're tackling. People know that we need more black men and white coats and people are behind us on it. That's what this tells me. 398,000 shares tells me that people are supporting what we're doing. And the event itself was, was phenomenal. We have um, a video recap, which we're putting out this week. So make sure you're on the black men and white coats newsletter. If you're not, go to blackmenandwhitecoats.org, sign up for our newsletter. We're going to send that video recap of the summit out. I mean, goodness, we had over 1,500 people register, another 300 on the wait list. A lot of people streamed the events. You know, of course, people were there in a packed house there at the actual event. Keynote speaker, Dr. Bernard Harris, a medical doctor who was in space. We had moderators who were, it was just, it was bonkers, guys. It was 
and everything was just so perfect. Everything was divine. It was, you know, it was, it was perfect. It was amazing. We had a great time doing it. And what's even more important is the kids had a great time. We took surveys, of course, and the feedback we got from everybody was just stellar, amazing feedback. And we're really excited. But we're coming to a city near you. All right. So yeah, I want you guys to make sure you guys know that this isn't a one and done. We are we're well thought out. We're well planned. We've got a strong, solid team we're putting together and we are coming to a city near you. So if you like us to come to your city, definitely make sure you connect with me. Shoot me a message. Um, you know, just send an email. You can email summit at blackmenandwhitecoats.org. Summit at blackmenandwhitecoats.org. Send us a message if you're interested in us bringing this to your city. Right. And we will see what we can do about that. We've got, of course, we've already got tons of messages. A lot of people want, want us to bring it. And we're definitely going to make it something where people can take part. And because we're on a mission, we're on a mission. We're going to get more black men in white coats, period, point blank. We're on a mission. It's going to happen. All right. But make sure you subscribe to our newsletter. We're going to send out more information on the summit, including the video recap. It was amazing. You're going to love it. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Get all that stuff because that's where you're seeing all of our social media stuff just pouring out. My guy, Anthony, social media genius, he's going out there. He's making sure you guys are getting the information that you guys need for, for all this. Other thing, one more thing that I'll be quiet and let you guys get into Dr. Mo's show. So you guys, please subscribe to this podcast. You know, we spend time, put this podcast together, put it out there for you guys. I want to make sure you guys subscribe because the more subscriptions we get, the, the higher it gets rated and the more people get to see it and share the podcast. If you're a pre-medical student, send it to your pre-med clubs. If you're a medical doctor, send it to your medical doctor club, send it to the people in your, in your network. If you're a medical student, you know, if and you're probably part of SNMA, send it to your SNMA club. Make sure you guys are sharing this, subscribing, because we need more people to, to hear this message. We tell these stories because we want people to hear these stories and, and I want to change the narrative. We want to change the narrative, right? It takes a village. All right. I'm going to be quiet now. Let you guys get into hearing Dr. Mo's show, Maurice Sholas. And on the back side of it, I'm going to come back and tell you guys a couple jewels, a couple pearls that I thought were, were critical. All right. Check it out. Well, hello there. This is Dr. Maurice Scholes, and I'm a black man in a white coat. I first want to give some time to say thank you to the organizers of this podcast series, Dr. OU, and your colleagues are great for connecting those of us in medicine with those of us that want to be colleagues in the future. So great work, and I'm very, very proud to be a part. So uh, here's my story, how I went from where I was to where I am, and I'm still working on getting to where I want to be. I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, so I'm a child of the Deep South. Um, growing up, we were working class for sure, to use the common terminology, but back in the day, we was poor. Um, that meant my parents used their network of friends uh, as they got married in college uh, to sort of make ends meet day to day as they were both finishing their degree. So my first exposure to a college campus was in my mother's womb. Um, my parents are proud Jaguars of Southern University. And from there, um, they utilize those family and friends to help their children move forward. Um, I don't recall going to a specific doctor growing up. I know we went to the clinic um, and we just saw whoever was available and rotated through. So I'm not sure where my connection to medicine started or came from, 
but I know I've wanted to be a doctor ever since I was six. I don't have any relatives that are physicians, direct relatives. I have a distant cousin that is a dentist. Um, so I guess the first thing is that you don't have to come from a long line of doctors and know how everything is supposed to be up front to be successful in your journey. It's okay to walk into things and be a trailblazer and a first timer and really, really uh, use your network and your skills and process to find your way through, whereas other people might have had a map. Now, um, from grade school, uh, we moved out of Louisiana from where I was born in Baton Rouge to all over the country. We lived in Illinois, um, Alton and Godfrey area, which is right across the river from St. Louis, so downstate. After that, we lived in Kansas, um, Olathe, which is a suburb of Kansas City, Kansas. And then I ended up going to high school in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. So we lived in Springfield, Virginia. So in spite of the fact that we grew up in many places in the Midwest, in the mid-Atlantic states, we were a family of the South and our cultural traditions and mores and stuff reflected the fact that we were Louisiana people. Now, I should give a caveat that my daddy's a Louisiana person by birth. My mom was born in Florida and her people are from South Carolina. So we adopted the Gullah Geechee transfer to Florida ways into our South Louisiana ways. And you'd be surprised at how um, alike and similar those different aspects of the black diaspora are. But I digress. Getting back to my journey in high school, um, that was one of the first times I really experienced disappointment. Um, something I really wanted to work out just didn't. Um, and it was a small thing to start, but at the time, you know, when you're 15, 16, everything feels like it's just the end of the earth. Um, I tried out for a play and thought that the lead role was destined and written for me. And I did not get that role. <laughs> uh, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't understand it. I thought I sang better than the other people. I thought I I tried out better. I thought I was a stronger performer, but alas, the director of the show didn't agree and I didn't get the part. Well, from that disillusionment um, and from that loss, I discovered the individual speaking events of uh, forensics and public speaking. And that's something I went on to do and ultimately became a national champion in. And my point of that story is I never would have known that I was a good individual speaker, a good interpreter of material, had I not experienced that initial disappointment. So whenever your disappointment happens or whatever thing you really thought was for you and didn't work out, um, usually those are learning opportunities to figure out actually where you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be doing. And I'm living testimony to that. Um, whether you think that is God's grace or divine prophecy or fate working out or just dictuitiveness, um, know that disappointment is a part of life sometimes. And sometimes those disappointments shape who you are and where you're supposed to be in very powerful ways. So my disappointment with that role in high school led to me discovering a whole new set of things that I was very good at that ultimately made my package stronger and made me a better person. And I have to believe that those skills I got public speaking in those competitions really helped with me, helped me with my interview process. Um, so the silver lining is always there. In high school, um, I did some different programs here and there. Nothing really medical geared um, because I still was interested in the arts. I was still interested in athletics. I um, ran track at the time. And so 
I can't say that I was somebody that did all medical things all the time uh, from the moment I decided I wanted to be a doctor until my career fell into place. Um, I think it's important to explore all of those pieces and parts of yourself because whatever your ultimate career goal, all those pieces and parts of yourself are necessary to make you the best at whatever you are. So get through high school and I'm in my junior year and realize for my senior year, I only have a couple of credits left. Um, and as I tell people in my grade school, middle school and high school experience, I was in very, very predominantly white classrooms. So I was that little speck of pepper amongst all that salt. Um, and so as a result, I thought I was the only smart black boy in the universe. Um, I thought there were only sort of certain ways to be authentically black. Um, and all of that changed when I left high school after my junior year to attend my parents' alma mater, Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, when I went to Southern, a campus of 10,000 black people from all over the country, if not the world, um, that was when I learned that I wasn't the only smart black guy in the world. I learned that there were lots of different ways to be authentically and tremendously black. And I learned what it was like to have things made for, about, and geared towards me. And I think in a world where black men, um, especially black men, seeking to accomplish something rare or unusual always feel so odd, alone, isolated. It's really important to do things that ground you in your village and your community. And by that, I don't mean not necessarily, necessarily we're all the same skin complexion, therefore we're a community, but people that are interested in varied and wonderful things that speak to different parts of your soul those are the people you need to find and be in a community with so that those times when you feel so isolated and so alone, you actually have a village that understands and has a village already there to support you. So in college, I will tell you, it was a social success. Um, I didn't have the kind of experience some people describe as, oh my gosh, I struggled to get through this and I struggled to get through that. Uh, no, no. There wasn't a party that happened that was good that I didn't go to. <laughs> there uh, wasn't a aspect of my social life and, and, and personal growth that I didn't attend to. And so I really look at my four years at college as a real coming of age from a standpoint of I went from being a child dutiful to what society thought I should be to a individual and a being conscious of what I wanted to be. Now, with all of that awakening, there was still quite a bit of ignorance because, well, when you're in that age group of, you know, 16 to 20, you think you know everything, but you haven't been on the planet long enough to really know anything. <laughs> so I was at Southern, which is an engineering school. Um, I went there in part because my parents are alums and I have fond memories of going to Bayou Classic and homecoming growing up. So I wanted to replicate that when I got a chance to be, quote unquote, on my own in college. But that also meant that I didn't have the infrastructure of a place like Xavier or Howard um, that have very strong pre-med programs with, with predestined and, 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 and fabricated and formulated curriculum to just explain exactly what you need to do if you want to go to medical school. Now, the downside is that I had a certain amount of ignorance going into the medical application process. But the upside is that I didn't know enough to psych myself out and be terrified and afraid. Um, so, for example, I thought that if you turned in your application on time and paid the application money, that 
they would give you an interview to med school because it was only kind and only appropriate. I didn't know enough to know that there was a level of sort of discernment and a level of exclusion that happens between the applicants and actually people that move on to the interview process. For me, that was a good thing because, well, had I known all that, I might have overthought it and put myself into a bind, which makes, brings me to my next point. Um, in going through this process, knowledge, information, and perspective is important. But it's also important to not overthink things to the point where you do yourself a disservice. Um, it's important that you shine through in this process of application and you prioritize things that are important to you in a learning process. And I'll give you an example. So when I was applying to medical school, uh, I didn't have the sort of mindset of, well, this is the way things should be done. So I was really free to fabricate it how I wanted to. And I said, well, um, let me see how this is going to work. My dad, who's an engineer and probably the only person in the world that was disappointed in a way that I didn't choose engineering and actually picked medicine, um, insisted that I do some informational interviews with people. And for those that aren't familiar with that concept, that means you basically schedule an appointment to sit down with someone that is doing something or has a skill set that you want to know more about, but you're not asking them for anything other than advice and time. That way you can actually take some moments to understand their thought process and practice your ability to communicate and be understood. And there's nothing at risk. There's no marbles on the table. Through that process of doing an informational interview with a former alumnus of Southern University that was working with the um, uh, Georgetown Medical School System and the NIH, I was able to understand a little bit more about the process of medical school application. That meant I understood that a good strategy was to apply to three schools you think you'll get into, three schools you'll probably get into, and three schools that are on your wish list. That way, you always have something that's going to work out, um, most likely by the numbers, but you're actually stretching yourself for something that actually might be a dream that could come true. Um, the other thing that, that that process does for you when you stratify it that way is that you can explain to people why you picked their school when you applied. You can explain to people what made this particular place pop for you and cause you to pay some money and submit some time and energy to applying versus some other place that you didn't, um, which all goes back to the interview questions. So um, I picked uh, my state school that I applied to at the time. My parents were residents of Virginia. Um, so the state of Virginia has a charge from their legislature to interview kids from the state. So it would be foolish of me not to apply to the state school geared towards residents and children of those residents. So that was in. The other thing is that I felt because I'd had an HBCU experience and some of my colleagues and classmates that had gone before me had attended Meharry, they'd attended Howard. Um, I thought those medical schools would be places that would be good for me to apply to because I had a pipeline. They understood what my background was like coming from Southern and catered towards people like me. Um, I went further to say, okay, what schools are, you know, sound pretty good that I'm interested in. Um, I picked University of California, San Diego. Partly because my parents went out there on vacation with some friends and said the weather was so gorgeous um, that a fool would not want to at least look into going and spending uh, four years of their life there in that paradise. Um, 
you know, I, I put that out there because not every reason you pick a place is for some serious, studious purpose and cause. Sometimes it's because it's in a cool neighborhood surrounded by cool people with weather that I like. And, and that's enough sometimes. That's enough. Um, and then finally, I applied to some schools that were on my wish list. And on the schools on my wish list were Harvard, um, Johns Hopkins, um, and Georgetown. Uh, moving through that process... Um, at the time, it, it was not an electronic application, so we had to fill out postcards. And for you young guys, that's uh, a, 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 an envelope that doesn't go inside a package. It's just open you right on the back, put a stamp on it, and mail it out. That's old-timey way. When you sent that postcard in, the school would then send you a packet um, inviting you to apply. Um, they would detail what fees were necessary, what waivers were, were possible um, if you couldn't afford the fees, and when the deadlines and due dates were. I did that process, and as I told you before, I didn't realize that uh, everybody that turned in their application on time and paid the money did not automatically get an in, uh, get a interview. So when I got interviews, especially when I got an interview from Harvard Med, where I ended up attending, um, I didn't think it was as big a deal, I guess, as it was. Um, my advisor at the time was much more excited than I was because, again, I didn't really know, and I didn't have anybody in the background explaining to me what that actually meant. Now... Fast forward through the application process to starting at medical school. I, um, I was coming from Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is a public black school in the South. And I ended up attending the MD-PhD program at Harvard Medical School, which is a very private um, school in the Northeast. Um, I don't know that I appreciated what sort of cultural shift that would be for me. Because I've always been a friendly person. I've been in predominantly white environments. I've been in predominantly black environments. I didn't really have problems going back and forth. I've lived in different regions of the country. But I'm going to tell you, when you're coming from the South where winter is at the worst 40 degrees uh, uh, and everything starts sort of 30 minutes after the really stated time you're supposed to be there and you go to a place like Boston where everything starts as the second hand passes the top of the hour when they say it's, it's supposed to start and winters are just absolutely brutal and they have things called snow that us southerners didn't necessarily know anything about it requires a pivot. So to those of you that are looking at medical schools that are wonderful opportunities for you academically, but they're in places culturally or weather-wise or geographically that you're not familiar with, be aware that that's also something you have to just get accustomed to. So I had to get accustomed to going from a place where everybody drove everywhere and we wore shorts all year to a place where people took public transportation. It snowed pretty hard and I had to take cabs because this was before Uber and Lyft. Um, and I, and I, I don't know how to factor that into your process of getting ready to go to med school, but I'll tell you those little things um, can make your peace either better or worse. And if your peace is better, you're a better student. And if your peace is worse, um, it makes it a little harder to do the same kind of things. So think about that in the process. Um, in medical school, I did uh, my first two years of med school, took leave from med school, did my PhD to its completion. Uh, my PhD was in neuroscience. Um, I looked at how pain was processed in the brain. And then I came back to do the last two years of med school. Doing that interrupted med school, that means that the class that I did my basic science years with um, were gone by the time I got back to do my clinical rotations on the wards. 
So I had to learn a new group of people and a new cohort of people that had basically been gelling together for two years. Um, and that's also something to think about. If you do any other degree or process that interrupts your medical education, um, you're going to be working and interacting with people that you don't have a background in history and experience with. So you don't know who's the gunner. You don't know who's a really nice one that helps everybody out. You don't know who's the smart one that really knows everything that doesn't say a bunch and share. And you don't really know who's doing a bunch of talking but doesn't really know anything. Um, and I think all of those sort of cultural, social things are important as you move through the process of understanding what you want to do um, as a clinician um, on your path to becoming a black man in a white coat. So coming back to do the clinical years after doing my PhD, I was at a different point in my life. I had completed something to the end. Um, I had a terminal degree completed, um, but I was still very junior in a hierarchical process. And for those of you that don't know, it's almost military-like. So third-year medical students report to sub-eyes or fourth-year medical students who report to interns, who report to residents, who report to fellows, who report to the attending. And so everybody's rank is sort of pure in order, and with that comes an expectation of deference to those above you. It's also an expectation that those above you teach you. Um, so it's a two-way street. When you are an a non-traditional student or somebody that's completed something major before that process, it becomes a little tedious to then go back and be junior to someone that isn't finished with the process the same way you finished yours. And so I put that out there for anybody that is a older student that had a full career before they go back to med school. It's going to take some adjustment to sort of have some newbie or young person really be, quote unquote, in charge of you and senior to you and sort of driving how you do your job. Not insurmountable, but something to think about. Um, so here we go. Um, I'm going and doing my clinical rotations and I'm seeing my classmates get all excited about orthopedic surgery or get all excited about cardiology or they get all excited about OB-GYN. And I thought the things I was doing were okay, but I wasn't all excited about them. I didn't hate any of them with the exception of OB. Uh, that was not my ministry and I'm happy that I'm past that point in my life. Um, um, but nothing spoke to me the way it looked like those things were speaking to my classmates. So I did what all good pre-med, med student nerds did, and I got a book. <laughs> At the time, one of the drug companies uh, put out a book where they surveyed all of the major medical and surgical specialties and wrote chapters on each of them. And I read that book from cover to cover. So I read about what each of the different medical and surgical specialties did, what their reputation was like against their colleagues. And I came across a section on rehabilitation medicine. Now, at the time, there was no department in rehab medicine at Harvard where I was a student. Um, it has since been created and, it, and it's a, a part of the process now. But at the time, we didn't have a department recognized in that at the school. Um, but the section on rehab medicine really spoke to me. It was like applied neurology combined with non-operative musculoskeletal stuff from orthopedics in the context of, so what is the patient going to do after your diagnosis? So that a very functional, practical bias. And that spoke to me. So this is one of the first times I exercise in medicine my desire to walk the road less traveled. Because that's okay. Everybody else is walking down in internal medicine, cardiology, um, things I've heard of role. And I picked a role and a path that 
nobody had heard of at the time and didn't have really strong boundaries and definitions. So I did a rotation at Spalding Rehab Hospital, um, which is in the Harvard system. And I worked with a young man near my age on the spinal cord injury unit. He had broken his neck um, diving into a wave at the beach. And I don't know what it was about that patient professional relationship that we had. But number one, I was a wild guy growing up and everything that happened to him could have happened to me. And but by the grace of God, didn't. Um, Secondly, watching someone that was vibrant figure out how to reorient their life after catastrophe spoke to me. And lastly, it everything we did as medical professionals was geared towards making this person's life the best life it could be under whatever circumstance and limitation that fate put on it. Initially, I thought, well, do I love this rotation so much because it's actually that good or it just wasn't that terrible rotation I did before, which I didn't enjoy. So I did a second thing. I left my medical school and did an away elective this time in pediatric rehab out in Seattle, Washington and University of Washington. So again, the experience was amazing. I worked with kids and families that were dealt a bad hand by accident, by birth and had no idea how they were going to go forward. And so my job as a clinician was to help them find a path to optimal performance. Um, And that really spoke to me. So I discovered my specialty, pediatric rehabilitation medicine, through research and a very sort of uh, academic process as opposed to the warm, fuzzy, I saw it across the room and gasped and knew it was for me. (laughs) So I always say my specialty was chosen not like a love process, but like a business work process. Um, And that's been great. So I finish uh, finish up my third year and move into my fourth year. And at the time, I knew I wanted to do something pediatric-based, but this rehab medicine stuff was really speaking to me. So I actually interviewed both in pediatrics and in rehab medicine because at the time, I didn't exactly know how to combine peds and rehab because those didn't exist in a fellowship. So the road less traveled. Um, and I think the mistake I made was not committing to peds or rehab, so I seemed neither fish nor fowl to the interviewers in the process, and I think that hurt me in some ways. So even though I had an MD-PhD background from a top-tier school, I looked like I was wishy-washy in what I wanted, and people didn't know what to do with that. So to all of you out there that are trying to sort out, okay, I know I want to do something. I don't think it looks like all of my friends look. It's okay to pick that. But in picking something that people don't understand, realize that that might be a hindrance in somebody seeing you, understanding you, and choosing you because they don't know how your uniqueness fits into their predictability. Now, clearly it worked out because I ended up doing my residency in physical medicine rehab in San Antonio, Texas. Um, And I end up going there. It's a great reason. Um, My chairman at the time was the Uh, president of the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehab. So I knew we would be connected. And the program director really focused on electrodiagnostic medicine. That's EMGs and nerve conduction studies. And of all the things in physical medicine and rehab, that's the part that I care the least about and want to do the least. So I take the approach in life of do what makes me cover all bases 
and takes care of my bias. Because if I'd gone somewhere where EMGs weren't promoted and, and emphasized, I probably would have been one of those guys that just sort of did the bare minimum, didn't learn anything about it, and that would be a hole in my education. I finish the process of doing um, physical medicine and rehab and apply to Peds Rehab Medicine Fellowships. Now, at the time, there was no there was no match in Peds Rehab. There is now. Um, so it was like the wild, wild west. You just sort of find out which programs actually take a fellow. They were not accredited at the time. Um, sign up for the process and go out and interview. And the hard part was if you were interviewing at a program in one city and they made all their decisions in November, but you wanted to really find out about a program in another city, but they didn't do anything until December, you had to decide if you were going to sort of let a potential um, acceptance ride in hopes of getting something better or locking down the sure thing. Bird in hand, two in the bush. Um, the match process for all of its problems actually addresses that and lets people be on the same time frame so they can make decisions about their education and process that actually speak to what they want, not what they're afraid of. So I completed my training in pediatric rehab medicine in 2004. And at that point, I had lived in, <clears throat> let's see, Illinois, Kansas, Virginia. I had gone to school and been born in Louisiana. I did my residency in Texas and I did my fellowship in Chicago. So I had been a lot of different places and seen a lot of things. And one of my friends in a social setting, who's also from Louisiana, he was from New Orleans, where I was born in Baton Rouge, said, Maurice, would you ever consider coming home? Um, everybody always wants to go home. And no matter how many different places I lived, Louisiana was always home to me. Um, I said, yeah. And it turns out the LSU program in New Orleans was looking for a peds rehab doctor because they needed a professional in that area to help their residents in physical medicine and rehab prepare for that subspecialty area on our board examinations. But they didn't know where to find us because we were so rare. Um, and I was looking for a position and didn't know going home was an option. So at this point, I paused the professional story to say relationships matter. When you are a black man trying to get somewhere in a rare field, people you know, people that care for you, people that want to see you succeed are your greatest assets. And if it hadn't been for Dr. Carlos Vital, a black man in a white coat practicing allergy and immunology in Houston right now, asking me if I was interested in coming home and following that up by talking to the gentleman that was the section chief for physical medicine rehab at LSU, if he hadn't made that connection personally, the trajectory of my career would be different. So thank you to Dr. Vital first. And secondly, I put that out there to say that you can be brilliant, you can be great, you can be accomplished, and you can be well-versed, but you need your village and community to help you translate that into what you want to happen. It's very, very important. I ended up coming back to the state of Louisiana, and I was the first peds rehab doctor to come here. When I came, there was no abbreviation for us with the state medical board. Um, there was no way... We, were, we knew how to be credentialed at any hospital. So part of my job and role was not just to present myself as a black man in a white coat or my um, professional abilities. I also had to introduce my entire medical specialty to a region that had never heard of it. Um, and the conversations went like, you know, Dr. Scholes, I think you're a wonderful person. You seem to be very smart, but I have no earthly idea what one would do with someone like you. So in that vein... 
I learned how to do the business side of medicine because I had to explain how I made money, how I fit into the larger hospital operation schema. And I fast forward to now where I am 80% sort of medical operations, 20% patient care. And I see myself as a medical operations expert. That came because in translating who I was as a rare specialist, I had to speak the fluent language of business. So when I started this journey at six years old, I didn't know that I'd be an MD, PhD from Harvard, um, credentialed and experienced as a senior medical executive, um, not just shaping lives one patient interaction at a time or one family at a time, but one hospital system at a time. Um, So my last point I want to leave with you guys is that you don't know what you don't know. So never be afraid to dream big. Never be afraid to walk a path nobody's ever heard of and never be afraid to lean on your village because they are your biggest cheerleaders and they are your biggest support system. My name is Dr. Maurice Scholes. I am with Scholes Medical Consulting, and I'm a black man in a white coat. If you want to catch up with me, check my website out at www.docmosho.com. That's docmosho.com. Or hook up with me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook through my handle, docmosho, D-O-C-M-O-S-H-O. I look forward to connecting with you guys and know if I can do it, you can do it. And I'm proud of you already. And we are proud of you, Doc Mosho. That, you know, that story is amazing. So many great things I could pull out of that. And I mean, so many. Of course, the listeners, I'm sure you guys could pull so much out of that, too. A couple of things which I thought were really cool. One of the first things was, you know, where he chose to go to school and and why he chose to go there. And it just emphasizes heritage, heritage. I think that is such a big deal is understanding your heritage and and making certain decisions in life because of that, making decisions in life because of that, because legacy, these things are important. And these are these are the things that help generations succeed. Once you figure out something that works well and you continue to do it like goodness gracious, I was just I don't remember where we were, but recently. okay, yeah, I spoke with the American Heart Association last weekend. And one of the gentlemen, I believe it was Mr. Gerald Johnson, he was asked, talking about Black Wall Street. And I just, I was just thinking, Black Wall Street. And for those of you guys who don't know what Black Wall Street is, you know, Google it. Make sure you check it out. It's important stuff that you should know. Um, it was a very big economic success, economic development in the black community in Oklahoma. Got burned down. But make sure you Google it and check it out. But just thinking about Black Wall Street, imagine what could have come from that if that could have been perpetuated society for generations to generations to generations, this idea of heritage and legacy and doing things that you saw your parents do that was successful because that's very big in other communities, very big in other, uh, when I say communities, I mean ethnic communities, very big. And you have generational success, generational wealth, things of that sort because of this idea of heritage and legacy. And, and I appreciate how Doc Mosho included that in his stories. He's telling you guys, hey, I chose to go to college here because of this. That stuff's important. Very important. Second thing, which I thought was so important. You guys know I talk about this all the time. If you listen to my other podcasts or read any of my books, you guys know I'm so big on networking. And I like that he pointed that out. As a matter of fact, the podcast, I do another podcast for pre-medical students specifically called Pre-Med Mondays. 
And this week's episode was actually on networking. So this is just fresh on my mind. And I'm so big on this idea because as Doc Mosho mentioned, it's really important. You, 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 it takes a village. You're not going to be able to do this by yourself. It takes a village. All right. And my guy, Anthony, who does our stuff, a lot of stuff with us on Black Men and White Coats in preparation for the summit. You know, that's the tag that he was using. It takes a village. It takes a village. It takes a village for black men in white coats. And Doc Mosho emphasized that as well here. It takes a village. You have to have all these people with you to become successful. You're going to go further with them than you're going to go without them. Right. So just look at his career. He told you about his mentors. He told you about the people in his life who helps him become successful. Nobody's going to tell you a story about their success without including somebody else who helped them get successful. If they tell you a story that they did all by themselves, run away from that person because they are lying. Right? Nobody becomes successful by themselves. And I appreciate Dr. Mosho for really highlighting that, getting it out there, and, and emphasizing that because I want not just the kids, everybody listening to this needs to understand that it takes a village, right? So many great stuff in the story, and and I hope you guys learned a lot from it. I know I certainly did. And Doc Maurice Scholas, thank you so much for doing this. Remember, check him out, docmoshow.com. That's docmoshow.com. A lot of great stuff on his website. All right, family, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Take a minute right now. Just pause it and please just subscribe to the podcast. Click the button and make sure you share it. I would ask that you share this with, you know, at least five people this week. Email your groups. Share it. Get as many people to hear this message as possible. All right. If you're a doctor or a medical student and you'd like to be featured on the podcast, Shoot us a message at podcast at blackmenandwhitecoats.org. That is podcast at blackmenandwhitecoats.org. Or you can send us a message on any of our social media outlets where you find us posting. And we'd be happy to chat with you and and work on getting you on the podcast if you've got something that's a great story that people are going to benefit from. All right. Thank you guys so very much for listening. Love you guys. Remember, make sure you subscribe to the Black Men and White Coats newsletter. So go to blackmenandwhitecoats.org. Subscribe to the newsletter. We're going to send out a recap on this event from the Batman White Coat Summit that just occurred. We're going to send a recap out so you guys can see it. And once you guys get that recap video, I want you guys to blast it to everybody. Blast it to as many of your friends as possible because we've got to get the message out, all right? And I'm talking, I need Oprah to hear this. I need Obama to hear this, okay? We need people with big voices to hear this message so they can help us really make, make an impact and really accomplish the mission that we're out to accomplish, guys. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I know I did. Love you guys.